Mighty Lord, we come before you this morning asking that you would be gracious to us, that you would minister to us, that you would strengthen us by your Spirit under the blood of Christ, as you have so given us the Savior, you have so redeemed us, you have so saved us. As Mary and Zacharias said, Lord, you have fulfilled all of your promises that you have made to our father Abraham, and you have given your son, Jesus, and the fulfillment of all those things. And we do pray, Lord, as we look to the word this morning, that in our hearing and in the preaching there would be unction, that your grace would attend us, and that you would instruct us from your word, your self-revelation, that we might know you all the more. We ask, Lord, that you would attend us in these things, in Jesus' name, amen. We look to read Genesis 17 this morning for the last time as we deal with this last part. We'll read the whole chapter, starting with verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. The uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is one hundred years old, and shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time set next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised all the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael. And all the men of the house, born in the house, 
or bought with money from a foreigner, or circumcised with him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. As by way of a short reminder, initially, the Almighty One speaks with his servant. He requires, as he says, and this is very important for the sermon this morning, that he will walk before him and be blameless. He requires faithful obedience to his revealed will. Being perfect means to walk blamelessly, to be like God, to keep everything that God has told him. God changes his name to Abraham and explains the promise, the promise of the covenant, that it will be everlasting, that it will be forever and ever, literally. And there are requirements to this covenant. There's a sign. Here, circumcision being a promise made to, to him and his seed, it's a token, a sign, a mark, in this particular manner, in his flesh. The object lesson and significance given to him would have been that every time there was some procreative act, that the seed would pass through the cutting of the covenant that was made with him. And he would be reminded of this. There is a pact, an agreement made. The male was the spiritual head of the household. And thus, each time that blood was spilled in that cutting of the covenant, the promise would be remembered. Likewise, God says that anyone who is not circumcised, anyone who does not have the sign of the covenant placed on them, will be cut off. So it was a very solemn act that God desired of Abraham. God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant-keeping God that works within the family. The covenant sign is to be placed on all in the family by covenant keepers. And the covenant signs are given to members of the visible church in three ways, which we discussed last week. The Lord so ties himself to them that they should be called by his name, or his name shall be called on them. Secondly, the Lord promises that they shall, above all others in the world, have the means of doing them good by his grace and conveying of the special benefits of the covenant to him. And, thirdly, that the promise of salvation is set within that context, and that the Lord promises that the seed of his people shall have their stony hearts taken out, and hearts that beat after him set in. Let's talk about now the effects or the consequences of the sign of the covenant of grace which for us is very important. As it affects man, we've already seen that everyone who is in covenant with God is bound by covenant, regardless of which one they're in. If they're not in the covenant of grace and they're under the covenant of works, everyone from all time always are in covenant with God. It just, it just matters what kind of covenant and what kind of relationship they have. You always hear people say, oh, we hope that you would be in relationship to God. Well, what we're saying is we want them to be in a good relationship to God because everybody is in relationship to God. They are either under the covenant of works, which sets them under the fall, or they are under the covenant of grace, which sets them in the visible church. Salvation, or the method, the method of salvation, is set in that covenant, and it is set under the manner of walking blamelessly before God. All the hearers of this gospel are immediately bound to believe every truth that is in that gospel. They are to walk before God perfectly. That's what he requires. In particular, they are to believe in the name of the Son of God for life and salvation. With everything that belongs to this covenant as Christ holds it forth for us, for the end and purpose of glorifying the Father. 
there is a door that is held open in the covenant of grace to all with God regularly setting before them the means of salvation. And even if they're not released immediately from the bondage of the old covenant, the covenant of works, yet no one at any time in the church should ever despair about possibly being elect or not elect or going through all of those questions because God is merciful and God has promised that those who seek him rightly, those who walk blamelessly before him, shall be saved. But we know that there is somewhat of a catch there because only those who have a new heart will be able to walk blamelessly. God has manifested his mercy and grace under the covenant of grace, the covenant made with Abraham, and the covenant ratified or set down perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Those in covenant with God externally, though they are actually brought under the umbrella of the covenant of grace, they should strive. They should, just as those who are saved, to improve the covenant sign that's placed on them, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. They enjoy, these elect enjoy, a different relationship with God other than the heathen. Those under the covenant of grace, whether internally or externally, enjoy a different kind of relationship with God than the heathen. Just the idea of the federal head totally abolishes the idea that those that God sets his eye on are only the elect are only those who are regenerated. Rather, the federal head in and of itself, the concept of the federal head in and of itself, demonstrates that God has an eye. As he said to Israel, you are the apple of my eye. He has an eye to the entire family of the one under the federal head. The wife, the children, even as Paul says in Ephesians, the slaves. Masters and slaves have a certain God-honoring relationship in covenant that way. If the federal head means anything, and it certainly does, then we see that God has a covenantal understanding when he deals in relationship with us. And this covenant that's ministered to us separates those in that covenant with those not in that covenant. Let's first look at God, Christ, and covenant very briefly. Jesus Christ has been and always will be the mediator of the covenant of grace. Christ mediates the covenant internally and externally. Christ acts in the believer's name and he acts between God and Christ holds forth and applies salvation to his elect. This is what God says to Abraham when he says, I will be your exceedingly great reward. He holds forth a testament in his blood. And in this he declares and he offers and he promises and he accordingly conveys the good things of the covenant, life and salvation, as mediator to those in the covenant. Hebrews 12.24 says, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That, Jesus is the mediator. That he is the one who mediates between God and his church. He is the head. They are his body. And this life is offered up by Christ, the mediator, which demonstrates the word of God in the gospel. And the gospel is the same gospel, as Paul said, that was given to Abraham. The word of God demonstrates the context in which the gospel is given. And that context is the covenant that Christ mediates. The whole word of God, then, is a ministry of the mediator that demonstrates life 
and salvation. So we find that he mediates the doctrine of the covenant to us. What that means, all of the things that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. It also means, secondly, the improvement of the covenant. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Can it be that anyone improve on their election? Well, no. In terms of the decree of God, in terms of His saving grace, they cannot improve that. But in terms of their sanctification, they absolutely can set on the path of improving it. Such as our text, Genesis 17.1. I am Almighty God. Walk, the theology of walking, walk before me and be blameless. So we are under Christ's headship, under the mediator's watchful eye, not only to be in the covenant of grace as his elect and as his people, but also that we are to improve the sign which has been placed on us, which represents or gives a token of that covenant to us. And that applies to us all. Being bound by covenant with God, he presses his people to the duties that contain certain motives and encouragements for us. The covenant must be improved in our mind and in our hearts in the way that we walk before him. For us, Gentiles in the New Covenant, we're baptized. Listen to what the Westminster Confession says in the larger catechism. It's question 167. It's a little lengthy, but I want you to listen to what they're saying about baptism or the covenant sign being improved. How is our baptism to be improved by us? The answer, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is, de- is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation when we are present at the administration of it to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it, and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism in our engagements, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ, into whom we are baptized for the mortification of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. Now, that's a mouthful. However, The covenant in being improved in that way is setting the solemn vow, the oath upon us. It's recalling those things. It is a conformity and agreeableness to our covenant state. Simply, it's acting like a Christian should act. As Paul says, as if your conversation is in heaven. Walk like you're in heaven already. Just as Jesus tells us to pray. Thy will be done on earth. How? As it is in heaven. And there is an improvement in this if we begin to think about what God had initially done with the covenant of works and what he has done now in the covenant of grace. How we should be thinking about what God has done for us. In the former covenant of works, which was terrible in comparison to the better covenant, as Hebrew says, is that at the first, God and man, though infinitely distant from one another, as creator and creature, yet still friends, God was judge on the cause of the first sin 
Think about Adam in the covenant of works. One sin, one, and he was done. No mediator in the first covenant. One sin, and it was over. But in the covenant of grace, God and man deal together only by a mediator, by Jesus Christ. That it is with him primarily and immediately that God deals and with man only in and by him. So likewise, we deal with God through him. That's the only way that God will be dealt with now. It is not then simply as a result of one sin and then we're out. Imagine if you were thinking that way. Arminians often think that way. They think that if they commit a big sin, they fall from grace. Well, sin is sin. Sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Any sin, then, would toss you out. Here, though, in the covenant of grace, God deals with us through a mediator, through Jesus Christ. In the blessings promised, the covenant of works first offered the improvement of life only, so that that was the only thing that Adam needed. But in this life, in the covenant of grace, life and salvation are given, together with all that was necessary to complement both of them. Under the old covenant, it was given to be on man's perfect obedience as the condition of that covenant. Perfect. The performance of which gave him the right by virtue of the agreement that God made with him. And yet, with us, under the covenant of grace, everything is given only for Christ's sake. That completely ends any bartering with God. Oh Lord, please bless me this way and I'll make sure I'll not do that again. Everything is conveyed to us by union with him, for him, by application of everything that he did, and all the benefits to our soul as a result of what he accomplished. He sends us a spirit that we are carried by the Spirit of God through faith. In Adam's covenant, it was conditional on his work. In the covenant of grace, it's gracious based on Christ's work, which he upholds and which he imputes to us. The old covenant was only by works and law, that which would merit something before God. The new covenant, made with Abraham, bears the free promise, bears reception that's made effectual by the Holy Spirit on account of what Christ did, what the mediator had done. In the old one, God requires of all men and promises life only consequently on their obedience, which they cannot do. In the new, he promises all and binds to doing only in virtue of what Christ has accomplished as the mediator. So as we think about that, now we have the covenant sign placed upon us. How then do we act as a result of that covenant sign? How do we, using that word, improve the covenant sign by demonstrating outwardly and inwardly our baptism? Well, this is a long life venture, something that we'll do for the rest of our life. It is a professed dedication to Almighty God. It is an oath. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. Many misunderstand its meaning. Many misunderstand what baptism is, so they never improve it. They think for some reason that it's just your ticket that gets you in the front door of the church. It's much, much more than that. It is a sign, it is a seal, it is a token of what Christ does in, in saving those who believe in him by faith. There are blessings attached to it and there are curses attached to it. If it is not improved... The curse is attached. If it is improved, which is only going to be done by the power of the Spirit in those that by faith look to Christ to improve it, they will be blessed. There are ways to improve it. Here's one, very simple. 
be present at the administration of it to others. Every time we baptize one, we want to be present. We should join in the celebration of that sacrament, which acts of faith. Faith that adores what Christ has done and adores the God who calls these people out of darkness into the light. The God who calls these people then to begin improving their covenant sign. This should bring to mind salvation. It should bring to mind the mediator. It should bring to mind the blood of Christ, the washing, the sanctification, everything that is involved in what the Christian is to do. Another way of improving it is in the time of temptation. At the moment of temptation, we are left with two choices. We are left either to be called by his name or not. We are left either at that time to resist temptation and walk blamelessly, as God so instructs us, or we are overcome by temptation and sin and transgress against him, doing something that's not befitting God's holy name. We must prevent being overcome by temptation. We are given over to God by oath, and we should make that oath strong, stand strong. We should be thinking, I'm covenanted with God. How can I do this great evil and so sin against God, whom I profess, whom I stood before all of my covenanted brethren and said that God's name is now placed on me and I will act accordingly. In the time of temptation, we should be reminded specifically of our baptism and the time in which the covenant sign was placed on us and how important that was to us and to God. Before conversion, for those who are in the church and even after conversion, in both ways, they should be improving the covenant sign that's given to them as they are in the visible church. The unregenerate should improve it knowing that they have been dedicated and devoted to God and that should act as a great measure of humiliation for them. They should be thinking, it's been placed upon me. Now what must I do to improve it? What should Ishmael do to improve it? What should the slaves and the foreigners bought with Abraham's money do to improve it? They should plead with God for converting grace. They should recall that there will be no advantages to the sign for them if they don't and if they reject God. In fact, they will be cursing instead. The cursing, the maledictions of the covenant will be upon them instead of the benedictions. After conversion, it should prompt us to seek sanctifying grace regularly. Any kind of backsliding or declension should always prompt us to think about our covenant sign and what oath we had and press us to pray for sanctifying grace and power. It should always prove to be a great prompter of sanctification for us, reminding us that here we are, giving oath before God, now entering into a life of faith before Him. Faith always improves the covenant sign. The same as it did for Abraham. Romans 4.9 says, For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. He was a man of faith. He was the father of our faith. Romans 4.12 says, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. That is the Gentile. Or verse 16, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That's why we are mimicking the same kind of faith that improves that which God gave Abraham, so we do today. Galatians 3, 8, 9. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Faith in Jesus Christ is the chief among the duties to improve our covenant sign and to walk blamelessly before God as Father Abraham did. All that love and honor and respect which is due to God, to Christ as mediator, is only founded upon this covenant and these promises. From what has been said on this, we should see how this covenant as held forth to us in Jesus Christ may justly enough be called a deed of gift and grant. It's laid out to us. It's set in front of us. It's ministered to us. God is not insincere in setting out this covenant just because men abuse it. His promises will always stand sure. And the offers of His grace are confined to be granted to those who, like Abraham, live a life of faith. So you have to ask yourself, specifically, as we apply these ideas, how do you practically improve the sign that was placed on you or those in your family as you have authority over them? Larger Catechism question 166. Unto whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church, and so strangers from the covenant of promise, till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But infants descending from parents, either both or but one of them, professing faith in Christ and obedience to him, are in respect within the covenant to be baptized. So here we have the covenant sign that's placed upon those in the visible church. We ask ourselves, what do we do to improve it? He specifically says to us, as for you, we're speaking to Abraham in Genesis 17, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your, their generations. That is to you as well. So, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. Galatians 3.14 says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That's us. Colossians 2 says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So for us, we have the same stipulations that are given, the same language, the same information that Abraham had in understanding what God desired of him to improve what he gave him. That's why the apostles were so very blatant with their Jewish brothers. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. Romans. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Do you do what Abraham does or did by faith? He took up not only the improvement of the sign for himself, but also his whole house. He went and... Can you, can you imagine that day? We've talked about it before. Somewhat a funny day in certain respects. Can you hear Abraham talking to Eleazar and all of the slaves that he's bought? Listen, I was praying. I was out here communing with God. God showed up. God told me that we're to circumcise the flesh of our foreskin 
right now. Can you imagine what they thought? Now, it wasn't that Abraham would have just told them that. He would have been irresponsible just to say something like that. No doubt, he would have explained the cutting of the covenant and what that meant and how important it was. And even the solemn warnings that anyone who didn't do that would be cut off. At that time, remember, he had already stopped over in a city or two proselytizing those who gladly received his message and were part of his house. No doubt then, they wanted to improve the sign as well. Romans 11 says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So as Abraham and what God had set up with them was the root, so we the branches in that covenant root should do likewise. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.14, explaining what are we going to do if a husband and a wife, one's saved and one's not. Because we're touching that which is unclean. And our children are going to be unclean as a result. And so he says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. Which is why Christ so looked as the Messianic rabbi to the manner in which he would deal with the little children in a manner that they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom comes upon us by way of covenant. And it is a distinguishing marker for us that separates us from that which is outside to that which is inside his church. Listen to what the confession says in 162, the larger catechism question, 162. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in his church to do what? To signify, seal, and exhibit to those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation. To strengthen and increase their faith in all other graces. To oblige them to obedience. To testify and cherish their love and communion with one another. And to distinguish them from those that are without. Ephesians 2 says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time... You were without Christ being aliens from what? The commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What were they strangers of? As we talked about, is there any benefit to being a Jew? Paul says, yes, much in every way. To them were given the covenants, the promises, all of those markers that separated them from those without. And here, though we were once aliens from that same commonwealth, we have been given the sign, and now we improve it. We have been brought near. Paul quotes Acts, who's quoting Joel, who's quoting Abraham. The hope is found in covenant. That's where Christ is. That's where Christ resides. I'm going to read one more quote for you that's a little lengthy, but I think important. It is from the Directory of Public Worship. And it helps us to understand what's happening here and, and how we should view this particular sacrament in placing the covenant sign on us. Here's what they say. That it is instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. That it is a seal of the covenant of grace. Of our ingrafting into Christ and of our union with him. Of remission of sins. Of regeneration. Of adoption and life eternal. 
that the water in baptism represents and signifies both the blood of Christ, which takes away all guilt of sin, original and actual, and the sanctifying virtue of the Spirit of Christ against the dominion of sin and the corruption of our sinful nature. That baptizing or sprinkling and washing with water signifies the cleansing from sin by the blood and for the merit of Christ, together with mortifying sin and rising from sin to newness of life by virtue of the death and resurrection of Christ. That the promise is made to believers and their seed and that the seed and posterity of the faithful born within the church have, by their birth, interest in the covenant and right to the seal of it and to the outward privileges of the church under the gospel no less than the children of Abraham in the time of the Old Testament. The covenant of grace for substance being the same. And the grace of God and the consolation of believers more plentiful than before, that the Son of God admitted little children into his presence, embracing and blessing them, saying, For of such is the kingdom of God. That children by baptism are solemnly received into the bosom of the visible church, distinguished from the world. And them that are without and united with believers, and that all who are baptized in the name of Christ, renounce by their baptism, and are bound to fight against the devil, the world, and the flesh. But they are Christians, and federally holy before baptism, and therefore they are baptized. That the inward grace and virtue of baptism is not tied to the very moment of time where it's administered, and that the fruit and power of it reaches to the whole course of our life, and that the outward baptism is not so necessary that through the want of it, the infant is in danger of damnation or the parents guilty if they do not contemn or neglect the ordinance when and where it may be at hand. So here we see that it is important because by the improvement of it, it demonstrates the oath which we made. It demonstrates our outward life to consider the great mercy of God to him and his child to bring up the child in the knowledge of the grounds of the Christian religion and then in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to let him know the danger of God's wrath to himself and the child if he's negligent, requiring his solemn promise for the performance of his duty. In other words, those that God has given us the responsibility of in our house, especially we who are the federal heads of our home, we must then, if we have the same faith as Abraham does, treat our house in the same way that Abraham treated his. He walked blamelessly and performed all the duties that God so required of him. There are no doubt, and we should be excited at this, there are no doubt better benefits covenantally in the New Testament and under the fullness and ratification of what Christ has finished. There are obvious and wonderful benefits in the New Testament that are over the Old Testament. Not that Abraham wasn't regenerate. Not that he didn't have the law written on his heart. Not that he wasn't saved. Not that he wasn't elect. Not that he wasn't born again. But the demonstration of those things. The true presence of the Messiah who has come. The one and only mediator. In him, the gospel is completed. In him, the calling of the Gentiles has taken place. And the grace of Christ has gone over all the world. The appointed apostles brought the proclamation of the good news and the Gentiles responded to it quickly. Aren't we glad? We are Gentiles. In the New Testament, there is a greater and more delightful measure of the Spirit that is seen. The effects of the Spirit can be seen in a more clear and distinct knowledge of the mysteries of faith, in a more generous, in a more cheerful degree of holiness that God demonstrates to us, a more delightful consolation to us, and its effects very plain. The gifts of the Spirit in and of themselves are more extent. In the new, there is a greater freedom of Christian liberty because Jesus has fulfilled all of the ceremonial law. It's a liberty common to all believers as a result of Christ's work. Does that annul the work of God's grace with Father Abraham? Not at all. 
Hebrews 6 says, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. And he also says in Hebrews 7, And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, that which God promised he so fulfills. We, though, are able to see the fulfillment of it. What we read this morning in Luke chapter 1, the very nature of it. Mary says, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. She's extolling God's promises made to Abraham. She's extolling what God promised he would do and has done in Christ. Zechariah did the same. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham in verse 73. Mary was a good theologian, and so wasn't Zacharias. They were good theologians. They understood that the improvement of the covenant sign under the mediator of the covenant is going to be the same as father Abraham, that we are to walk before him blameless. This was much much greater to them as a result of being able to see and experience at that very moment the coming of the Messiah. How amazing. And this is much more than some independent sectarians would classify for the federal obligations that they had over their homes, that we have over our homes, that Abraham had over his home, never change. God simply improves for us the visibility of the covenant. And we then are to improve the visibility of the covenant in our own life. Every time we enter temptation, every time we come before the preaching of the word, every time we see someone baptized, every time someone comes to faith, every time we see something of the Word of God ministered to us, we should be reminded of the covenant sign that was placed upon us. It should be an improvement of it. It should be a furthering, a further solidification of the oath that we took before Him to live as such. And if we do, God says that we have the same faith as Father Abraham. Let it be so. That as we have looked at the covenant sign, as we looked at God as the covenant keeper, as we looked at where the signs go and what they do and what they mean, now that we know we must improve them, that we would have the same faith as Abraham, who was our father. All because of the ratification of that covenant in Jesus Christ and ministered to us. Let's pray and ask the Lord would help us this week as we dedicate ourselves to him further understanding how we are every day to improve that covenant sign. Let's go and pray. Mighty Lord, as we begin to think about the improvement of the covenant sign that's been placed upon us, as we have been baptized, Lord, Help us then in every area, whether it be the management of our house or whether it be our own Christian walk, that we would improve the covenant sign before you. That you would be glorified as a result of our walk and that we would not, O oh Lord, despise you or reject you or follow our own sinful ways. O oh Lord, do not be ashamed to be called our God. Let it be that through the blood of Christ and the power that's given to us in the Holy Spirit that we would dedicate ourselves before you, that we would be more mindful of the oath that we made in our baptism before you as the covenant sign was placed on us. Help us, O oh God, now and forever improve that covenant sign that we might glorify you in everything. And we so ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.